Hi, welcome to New Mexico in Focus, the podcast for Monday, October 10th, 2022. I'm your host, Lou DeVizio. I hope you all enjoyed Laura Paskus' episode of the podcast last week when she spoke to Teresa Pasquale, the director of the Historical Preservation Office at Acoma Pueblo. If you didn't listen, they talked about the new threat of hundreds of new drilling permits near Chaco Canyon. They also talk about why Chaco has such a special meaning for indigenous people and how fossil fuel development has affected that landscape and its surrounding communities. I really recommend that you listen back if you missed that episode. As for this episode, we'll get into some headlines in just a moment. You'll also hear a discussion from our line opinion panel looking back on the KOB-TV governor's debate and some of the recent developments in that race since. Then you'll hear from correspondent Gwyneth Doland, who sits down with UNM political science professor Dr. Gabriel Sanchez to talk about a new report that he co-authored on our recently redrawn district lines, the intent behind those new districts, and how the public is feeling about them. And we'll end the episode this week with a conversation I was privileged to have with a journalist and filmmaker who spent months covering the war in Ukraine. Patrick Hillsman is a wartime journalist who previously spent time in Syria and was most recently in Ukraine trying to document some of the stories that may have been lost to the Russian invasion had he not been there. I was humbled to speak with him and to get his perspective on the people impacted by those horrors. He's an extremely interesting person and I have a ton of respect for the work he's done and is continuing to do. That interview is coming up in just a little over 20 minutes. But for now, let's get right to the headlines impacting New Mexicans. After more than a week of windy and wet weather, the 50th Balloon Fiesta has come to a close. Of the 14 planned ballooning events, seven were canceled because of weather, and there were also two separate shelter-in-place orders on the field. I'll say from personal experience, though, the first Saturday of the celebration was still fantastic. The mass ascension went as beautifully as it could have, and for the thousands of people that I saw out there, they were all having a blast. I'll certainly be looking forward to year 51. Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham is asking the Department of Justice to assign more FBI agents to the state to help control violent crime. In a letter written September 15th to U.S. Attorney General Merrick Garland, the governor details recent homicides in Albuquerque and says, quote, additional federal agents are needed to alleviate the current strain on New Mexico's law enforcement offices, end quote. Governor Lujan Grisham sent a similar request in June to FBI Director Christopher Wray. Looking ahead to Election Day, the race for governor is gearing up after that first debate between the leading candidates. GOP nominee Mark Ronchetti and Democratic incumbent Michelle Lujan Grisham faced off on KOB-TV a little over a week ago, and there have been new developments since. Let's get right to our line opinion panelists. This week, that's attorney Laura Sanchez, former state senator Diane Snyder, and editorial page editor at the Santa Fe New Mexican, Inez Russell Gomez. Here's Gene. Now, we're starting things off with the governor's race, which has hit another gear after a debate on KOB last week, KOB-TV. We'll get into some of the specifics from that debate in a minute, but we want to get, some, get straight some of the new polling data in this contest that informs all of this. It comes from the national polling firm Signal, that's C-Y-G-N-A-L, if you have not heard of that, which collected information from September 27th to the 29th. Now, that poll shows Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham with just a two-point lead over Republican nominee Mark Ronchetti, 46 to 44%. Now, overall, the website 538 polling, which you might be familiar with, now they have the governor with a six-point lead over, over Mr. Ronchetti. And Diane Snyder, let me start with you. Are you surprised to see the race this close? And I should add, Signal 
identifies itself as a uh, GOP-leaning uh, polling firm, so I just want to get that out there, too. Are you surprised he's uh, this close to the race from either poll? Truthfully, no. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I think that, and it, to me, it kind of, I, I looked at it and I evaluated it based on prior years and prior competitors. Mm -hmm. uh, for one thing, I, the governor has always been, uh, part of her appeal has been her energy and her enthusiasm and uh, her go get it uh, kind of attitude. Mm -hmm. And I felt like that we couldn't see that at this last debate, right. uh, just a feeling, an attitude. Whereas Mr. Ronchetti was very much, Mark is smart, he's well-educated, he's articulate, and he understand, He has a people understanding of the issues of what people want to hear, mm -hmm. the thing that impacts them, not what a national poll tells us impacts mm -hmm. the general public. Mm -hmm. So I think he, and I think he did very well at this last one. And the one thing I came away with is the governor had to keep going back to the issue of abortion. Mm -hmm. It'd be to, to come, to have something concrete against Mr. Ron Getty. And I just don't think I think it's an important issue. I think it certainly plays a part in what's happening. But when you're going to the grocery store and you can't buy half the things, you know, that you did buy before, your children can't have new shoes. They're having to wear the old ones. Mm -hmm. It the economy and the impact families are feeling that personally more than the abortion issue, unless you're I don't know, but I just feel like that makes up the differences. Mark talked about crime, and crime is really important. And if you noticed, the governor has now asked the FBI for 50 more agents right. into the state. That's right. They said no. So now she's gone to the Justice Department to try to get it. So it clearly reinforces uh, Mr. Ronchetti's contention that we are in dire straits so far as crime. I, so glad... that's, that's kind of where I, it doesn't surprise me that he's creeping up. Mm -hmm. There's still, quite truthfully, it's a lot of days till election day. Mm -hmm. So that may, that may have been just a bump from the debate, and we'll see what the other one brings. There you go. Inez, uh, by the way, early voting starts October 11th, which is like right around the corner. Inez, watching that debate on KOB, Mr. Ronchetti, as uh, Senator just mentioned, clearly wanted to go after the governor um, right out of the gate. He repeatedly, but here's my point. He repeatedly called her, quote, out of touch, end quote, with New Mexico citizens. That's an old charge that you see on the national scale. And it, it, I just, I'm curious your response to how, how effective you think that angle of attack is. Well, I think it's hard to say someone's out of touch when you have a, a zillion dollar house that you built on television in Angel Fire. I mean, I don't have a, a second house in Angel Fire mm -hmm. that I had a TV show to, to furnish and build. Um, and the governor, you know, lived in the North Valley in Albuquerque in just a normal house and runs in the ditches. And now, of course, has the, the mansion in Santa Fe. Uh, she's a mom. She's been a widow. Uh, now she's remarried. She has grandkids. So mm -hmm. I think... You know, I was thinking about what it was to have been like to be governor during this pandemic and watch 
uh, your mother dying and not be able to go see her because that's what you did. And, and that's to me, what happened to most of us yep. is we couldn't see our family. We let, you know, we dealt with COVID and we went about our lives. Um, I would go back to the debate though. And I wonder, you know, first of all, the polling average, uh, still four to six points. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously it's going to be close because New Mexico is a closely divided state. Um, I wonder if a debate is as important as what's happening right now on Twitter and on Facebook, where you have the Mark Ronchetti memes, where some genius person um, decided that Mark Ronchetti would be bad for New Mexico. That's the the basic premise. Mm -hmm. And they take things like Mark Ronchetti puts ketchup on his tamales. Mark Ronchetti says fried bread instead of fry bread. And then it says, bad for feast day, bad for New Mexico. And there are dozens and dozens of these. Mm-hmm. And I think back to how many people watch a debate, how many people read the story in the paper. In this one, there was no singular moment where we saw, oh my gosh, she screwed up, or right. he was brilliant in that point, or he was terrible in that point. You know, they all did, you know, I think they did their jobs. So I wonder if a debate almost even matters if you don't have a knockout punch Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and meanwhile underground in a place where young people are and other voters who maybe don't go to the polls as frequently you know places like twitter and facebook you have mark ronchetti skis and jeans bad for skiing bad for new mexico i don't know if any of that makes a difference i I have no clue but i think it's really interesting what's happening in the parts of the campaign we don't see on television all I know is it's clogging my feed, and I'm like sleeping people for 30 days left and right to get out from under those Ronchetti memes. They're like, well, oh, my God. Well, some of them are not very funny. They're not, the nice thing is they're not that mean either. They're just yeah. there. Be, but they're not, a lot of them are not good. Yeah, it'd be better if, they'd be, if they were funny. That would be a lot better. Yeah. Laura, you know, interestingly, um, I want to go back to something Senator mentioned, and that is the constant use of the abortion issue um, for the governor. Now, when you think about it, Mr. Ronchetti's been forced to spend TV money up to this day on the abortion issue, and it almost seems like she's got him squeezed in a corner on this, and he can't get other things sort of out there to talk about outside of crime and generalities. Is she on the right track here to just keep hammering abortion? Do they, are these folks onto something here? So, I mean, I think the abortion issue is so extremely important to mm-hmm. so many people in the state that it would be a misstep for her not to um highlight the differences there i mean mm-hmm. i think that's a huge issue i think she's been very clear on a position on abortion she worked to make sure that the uh, law that was still on the books was repealed previously um in anticipation of potentially having a situation where the supreme court would overturn roe v wade um and so i think that that's that's a, a big issue for her for her base um and for a lot of women in the state mm-hmm. and um people not just women but certainly it would be a misstep for her not to keep going back to it. But the interesting thing, the observation that the Senator had about her continuing to go back to that issue strikes me, well, I mean, he doesn't have a record. So it's not like he, she can go back to issues where he's voted or had any you know, sort of position where he was elected and had a, you know, worked on a, any policy issues. So it's it's also kind of tricky because she she needs to be able to sort of in some ways read the tea leaves about where he might be going on certain issues and abortion is such a clear one Mm -hmm. where there's a difference there um you know he's come out with other ads recently about education and talking about how he has a plan for education um that's still i think an important issue the education economy you know the abortion issue but um 
certainly we're, I think we're going to see some differences there. And I'm interested to know whether in the next debates we'll have a little bit more fleshing out of those, those kinds of issues as well. The mm -hmm. more the social, the, you know, the, the uh, salt, you know, stuff that the average New Mexican would be impacted by. Certainly right. education is a big part of that. No doubt. Uh, Senator, just got a quick minute here, but I got to get your opinion on how the governor, current governor, somehow was trying to hang, or not hang, but tie Mr. Ronchetti to former governor Susana Martinez. I mean, that was so out of the blue. I wasn't even quite ready for that. What did you, what did you make of that as a tactic? Yes, mm -hmm. I was surprised because I'm going, in, my, in the world I live in, that's not been a major connection. Right. I mean, you have seen Susanna going out and supporting. I mean, she's sports mark, I assume, but she hasn't been visible. Right. So I was, but the problem is, is all of us at, uh, who are talking right now is we're, we have more knowledge in some things than the average voter does. So they, that might work well with the average voter mm -hmm. if they disliked Susanna, if they liked her, then, so it's a, it's a 50-50 chance on whether you're going to gain. Right. I don't see her gaining any Republican votes or, or independent votes by tying him to Susanna Martinez. Gotcha. So. Um, Inez, can you finish our segment with the same question? You know, an effective tactic, trying to bring in former Governor Susanna Martinez into this? I don't, you know, I, I agree with the Senator. Who knows what people will react to, yeah. but I would say, this, when you're going to bring her in, say Governor Susanna Martinez, not your mentor, because they may not know who your mentor is. Right. I think it's a totally fair comparison because Jay McCluskey is the advisor to both of them. Mm -hmm. He is political, you know, guru guy. And I think if you're a person whose child needs mental health care or if you needed mental health care, you will have a reaction to the name Susanna Martinez. So the key to tying it is to bring back the mistakes that people feel were made in the Martinez administration, mm -hmm. which was the complete destruction of the behavioral health system in New Mexico. Yep. So I think if you tie a candidate to a person who did some things that were not good for the state, that can work. Thanks to Jean and the line for that discussion. Now, when you cast your ballot on November 8th, newly drawn district lines will be in use for the first time. We covered that redistricting process extensively on New Mexico in Focus, from the independent commission that collected data and input to create the recommended boundaries, to the legislature's final decision on each redrawn map. Now, a new report is raising questions about the intentions behind those final district lines. This week, New Mexico in Focus correspondent Gwyneth Dolan sat down with one of the co-authors of that report to find out how we can make this process more honest and effective. Professor Gabriel Sanchez, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You were part of a team that evaluated New Mexico's redistricting process. It's a big, long 59-page report. Yes. What's the major takeaway for you? Yeah, long, comprehensive report. You know, if I had to say what's the one take-home message is we had a much better process and outcomes with the CRC in place this cycle, but I think both the public and the experts I talked to are ready to go to the next step and have a truly independent commission with actually binding map decisions that doesn't have to rely on the legislature to actually implement them. I think that's the big take-home message. That's what everybody wanted to know, and unfortunately, we were able to find a pretty consensus you know, take on that. And I think that hopefully is helpful as we think about the next cycle some years from now. Yeah, I mean, in terms of some of the problems that we have seen in the past, uh, I've done a lot of reporting on redistricting. You've looked at this a lot. The number one thing that people said to me, people who had been a part of it, 
lawmakers, demographers said that the legislature pursues an incumbent protection plan. They draw districts that they are gonna win next time. Uh, you know, New Mexico state lawmakers tend to protect themselves and you found, but that was anecdotal. You found some evidence for it. Yeah, obviously that was one of the big research questions that, that we started the report with. You know, the line you often hear is, you know, we should make sure that we have constituents that pick their legislators, not the other way around, legislators getting to pick who their constituents are through the redistricting process. And, you know, a couple of different ways to look at that. One, in the survey, we asked folks about their perception of how that was done. Unfortunately, the legislature, and particularly the Senate, wasn't rated very well by the public, and we surveyed highly likely uh, New Mexico voters. So these are the folks paying close attention to what was going on on the ground. And probably more importantly, we actually had map analysis. Dr. David Cottrell, who actually did all the map analysis for the CRC itself, lent his expertise to our cause and did that for our evaluation report. And although there's some positives we can talk about in his map analysis, when it came to looking at incumbency advantage, he found that there was unfortunately evidence that there were more protection of incumbents through the legislature's maps, um, and, and much more so than the CRC, and a bunch of computer-generated algorithm-based maps that are supposed to take politics out of the equation. So at the end of the day, you'd have to conclude that there was protection of incumbents this redistricting cycle. And that, I think, confirms what we often hear on the ground anecdotally from folks, which is important for us as researchers. Whenever you test a question, you don't know what the answer is going to be, but whether it's in line with what the experts are telling you they're seeing on the ground, you know you really got something there. And here's something I found surprising. Uh, you know, one thing that a lot of people had predicted was you, you've got uh, you know, Democrats in control of the legislature and the governor's office, a lot of people said they are just going to run the show here. They're going to make this a complete political gerrymander and advantage themselves the whole way. In terms of the congressional districts, which you guys didn't look at, um, people are saying that looks like a Democratic gerrymander. But did you find that for the legislature? No, really important question and important finding. We actually didn't find strong evidence that there was any partisan gerrymandering, at least in the state maps. Our focus was at the state level. And I think you've got to give Democrats a lot of credit because as you alluded to, right, they had the opportunity to really push through some maps that would highly advantage their party. And that didn't happen. And in fact, even Republicans we spoke with that were on the CRC or just that follow the process closely, they all basically had to give credit to Democrats and said, you know, they really could have made this much worse for us. And they really did put forth, at least in terms of thinking about partisan gerrymandering, a, a pretty fair set of maps. So you got to give them credit for that. But I mean, if you're protecting who's in office now and they have strong majorities in both houses, all you have to do is protect the incumbents and you've got... You, you continue Democrat uh, dominance despite the, the changes. Well, a, as you know well, when it comes to partisan politics, there's no limits on how big of an advantage you can have. <laughs> That's right? right. So I was predicting actually, and there's a lot of folks I know in the legislature, as we started conversations about the CRC, a lot of them would tell me, you know, Gabe, I'm with you principally on this, but we're gonna have an opportunity to really take it to Republicans. And so I perceived going into this, we were gonna see a lot more extremity in that. And reality is there really wasn't a big problem there in terms of partisan gerrymandering, which I think is a win for everybody yeah. in the context of this cycle. That's so interesting. You know, this is the first time that an advisory commission was part of the process, that's new. Um, overall, how did the commission do? Well, I think uh, at least on a couple of, of really important pieces of the puzzle, 
they did an outstanding job. And I'd like to start by just noting everybody we talked to and the evidence that we collected suggested this was probably the most successful redistricting cycle, at least in recent memory in the state of New Mexico, and everybody attributed that to the presence of the CRC. And one area where I think it really stood out was in terms of community engagement. Um, a lot of this, you've got to give huge amount of respect to Justice Chavez, who led the CRC. He made some really important decisions that opened up access points to a wider segment of the community, especially tribal members of the community that don't often have the opportunity to engage in this process. And consequently, we saw it a number of different ways in our analysis, much more engagement from the public than you typically see uh, during redistricting processes. And I think that was definitely a result of the CRC's presence that really worked hard to ensure that they met the community at least halfway and made it easier for them to engage. Yeah, people said to me so many times that the the community engagement before was a dog and pony show and, and it wasn't like that this time at all. But you do have some recommendations for improvements. Um, so even if, you know, no matter what shape the commission takes next time, uh, what, what needs to improve or what should be different? Yeah, even though a lot of wins, I say technology was a big win that should be continued, gave people an opportunity if they couldn't get there in person, participate virtually. Biggest thing probably I heard the most about was being able to actually play around with map analysis and software as an average member of the public. I think that was incredibly valuable, but of course there's always recommendations of things that didn't go well. If we're talking specifically about the CRC, you've got to start with who is actually on the committee and how that naming process and vetting process work. Huge conversation early on, right? Big missteps, unfortunately, for the CRC. You had very low uh, levels of gender representation. It was almost exclusively male. You had no Native Americans, almost exclusively from Albuquerque and other metro areas. So we need to do a better job of diversifying the committee moving forward, whatever it is. If it's the CRC 2.0 or if it's a truly independent commission, let's do a better job of making sure it's more representative of average New Mexicans, not just those that are political elites or connected to the system. Let's do a better job with that, I think is the number one thing that I heard. And you also had a whole lot of, of, of really strong concerns about the role of the legislature in, in this segment of the process. Even though I will say, again, a lot of credit to be paid to the legislature in doing a good job on partisan gerrymandering and other things, um, you actually heard a number of legislators directly state, hey, CRC, you did a really good job, but you know what? It's our time in the process and we've got this. And in essence, I think it, it led to a lot of folks in the community perceiving the CRC didn't really have the power and authority to do as much as we would like to have seen because at the end of the day, in many cases, it looked like the legislature just threw things out and did their own things, unfortunately, sometimes behind closed doors without transparency. And that we heard loud and clear from voters in the survey is not what they want to see moving forward. In fact, of all the different things we put in front of them, what they prioritized is transparency. Everything should be out in the light of day is what the public wants to see. Professor Sanchez, thank you so much for talking to us. Absolute pleasure. I, I appreciate the opportunity to talk about something other than election analysis this time of year. Thank you. <laughs>
Joining me today in studio is Patrick Hillsman. He's an independent filmmaker and journalist who spent the last several months in Ukraine. Thanks for speaking with us today, Patrick. First, why Ukraine? I know you've worked in areas of conflict before as a frontline journalist. Uh, what about this situation pushed you to go and document what was happening there? I felt something of an obligation because I had been covering a lot of wars that Russia specifically has been involved in. And I've written a lot of open source investigative pieces about Russian weaponry. And the fact that there was a large war that was involving some of the topics that I'd previously covered. And also one of my best friends is a Lebanese Ukrainian who I met about a decade ago back when I was covering Syria. And as the invasion kicked off, he was just chronicling the uh, story of his village, which was being surrounded by Russian forces. Thankfully, they never made it in, but they were approximately two kilometers from his house. And the uh, Russian and Ukrainian soldiers were actually firing at each other over his home. And he suggested that I come visit him and do some journalism. And uh, I stayed in, in Lviv, which is to the west, and also uh, traveled across the country to Zaporozhye, Kharkiv, uh, Kramatorsk, which is in Donbass, Ternopil. You know, how did Ukraine compare to being the other wartime scenarios that you've been in, that you mentioned Syria? The major difference was that in Syria, one side had absolute overwhelming firepower, and the other side uh, essentially had almost no firepower. The fact that the Ukrainians have stuff like early warning systems, advanced satellite technology that the Americans have provided them has made a huge difference. Just having a warning of a few minutes is the difference between soldiers getting blown up in an airstrike and being able to take shelter and surviving. I witnessed things like that where the technological edge that the Ukrainian forces have in some, some circumstances saves lives. And that's a, that's a massive difference. Whereas in Syria, uh, the regime forces would simply encircle cities and just blow them to smithereens. They've flattened cities as well in Ukraine, but the difference is that it's come at a terrible cost for them to do that, whereas in Syria they were able to do it with relatively few casualties and thus no consequences. Your piece, Comedy at War, that you shared with us featuring Valaria, what made you want to follow a comedian, of all people, in a wartime scenario? In a war, the kind of gallows humor that people have really says a lot about the conditions that they're in and what they need to get through the day. And what I felt was compelling about her was that she was an internally displaced person from the city of Kharkiv, which is a majority Russian-speaking city in eastern Ukraine, which has been viciously targeted by the Russian forces, okay. which is in itself quite ironic because a, a large number of the victims of Putin's aggression have been the Russian speakers of Ukraine. And this runs counter to the propaganda that they've put out saying that they're liberating the Russian-speaking population. Of course, the president is Russian-speaking. The experience that she described to us is absolutely harrowing because part of what makes it so stressful for people to leave home is that as they left, they didn't even know where they'd end up because the trains had to take the safest route to the west. So sometimes that would mean that they would end up in Ternopil or they'd end up in Lviv or elsewhere. And to just to have a country which in many ways looks like my country. You go into, they don't have Starbucks, but you, go, you can go into a coffee house which is the equivalent of Starbucks. They have contactless payment. Everything appears as it would in America in a lot of ways. But then a few kilometers away, there's the second largest army in the world invading. And to, it was interesting to 
to learn how people are really stubbornly insisting on clinging to daily life. And in Kharkiv, for example, there is constant shelling. There have been a horrible number of civilian casualties, yet the subway still runs. And having the subway operational, despite shelling, despite bombing, despite Russian forces literally trying to encircle the city at a certain point, is very, uh, it's inspiring, and it shows a certain amount of stubbornness to insist on continuing daily life. And I think that she, going on, on stage, making jokes about the war, which has robbed her of her home and of her career for the time being, uh, was, was definitely something that we could all learn from. Sure. You mentioned that stubbornness, and we've heard examples of that from other people that we've talked to from Ukraine who are here in New Mexico and just watching news stories. But how much do you think that that plays into the relative success that Ukraine has had holding off the Russians? I think that people might put a little bit too much emphasis on there being some kind of unique character trait to people that live there. Okay. Because they're not terribly different from, from anyone else in how they view life. People want their kids to go to school. People want to be able to enjoy their life and laugh and, and be happy and people are still getting married. But it's part of the reason that they've been so successful in fighting back is simply that they just don't want to die. They've, they, they've seen what's happened in cities like Mariupol and it's an apocalypse. So the idea of banding together to try to resist that is not, it, it doesn't necessarily take a unique outlook or a unique stubbornness to be willing to resist. It's just people's insistence on living is really what their secret weapon is, I think. Now, you're back here in New Mexico where your parents live, and coming back, what do you want people to know here in the U.S., but here in New Mexico also, about what's happening in Ukraine? I want people to know that the propaganda that's being put forward about it being some kind of country that's oppressive to Russian speakers is laughable. President is a Russian speaker. The cities that are suffering the most from Russian bombardment are majority Russian speaking. A lot of the times if you go out on the front lines, the soldiers will be speaking in Russian. And it's in, in some parts of the country, it's unusual to hear Ukrainian spoken. And that is the, the pillar of Putin's propaganda, is the notion that he's liberating the Russian-speaking population of Ukraine. And that, that's, it's, ju it's just false, because the Russian-speaking cities have been just viciously targeted. And I think that it's important for people to understand that that is not true, that is not a truthful message that's coming from Russia. Secondly, Ukraine needs aid, period. There is a huge lack of some basic supplies. Fuel is almost impossible to come by. It's rationed. And for people to be able to live normally, they need vehicles because Ukraine is a gigantic country. So traveling between cities now that air travel is grounded is, is incredibly difficult. It, it can, you, know, you can be in a car for, for 24 hours sometimes, and you just have to get used to living in cars in order to travel anywhere. And things like solar energy, uh, hybrid vehicles, cars with better gas mileage, basic medical equipment, th things that people are not thinking of very much in the media or in public consciousness are needed out there. For example, there's a lot of volunteers that are going over there to fight, right? 
there's a large, Ukraine has a large army and it has a lot of manpower. What would probably be more helpful for them would be experienced drivers or medics or people that are good at operating drones, people that are good at repairing vehicles, people that are good at, at software. There's, there's a need for everything now. And we just look at the military side, but Ukraine's success so far has as much to do with them insisting on keeping civil society active as it does on the military aspect. Actually, one of the, one of the first things I said when I got there was that uh, I said, you know, I, I think Ukraine might actually be successful in this war. And my friend said, why? I said, because I just paid for a soda at a gas station with a credit card, and it still works. A lot of the areas around Kyiv that were devastated by the Russian bombardment, you can go there now and they're repairing them. We, I was headed east once, and I remember we had to, <laughs> there was a destroyed bridge, and we had to sort of drive down by the riverbed to a little, uh, to like a, a smaller bridge that had been built to try and to compensate for the fact that the bridge was blown up. And then a couple weeks later, when we came back, there was a new bridge there. And I said, this was, this was blown up last time we were here, right? And it was repaired. So you see people fixing things under bombardment. That's extraordinary. And if you want to talk about what is contributing to them being able to at least fight for their independence, I think it has a lot to do with that. It's not just soldiers, it's everybody. Thanks again to Patrick for talking to me about his work. I'm truly grateful that we were able to connect and that he was able to share his time with us. I hope you feel the same way. You can watch a longer version of that interview and see some of the photos his team took while they were on the ground. That's all available on the NMPBS website under our cultural affairs program, Coloris. As always, thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like it, please check out our show Friday nights at 7 o'clock on New Mexico PBS. If that doesn't work for you, we always repost the show on our YouTube channel. We post individual segments also so you can watch the whole show or piece by piece, however it works for you. Also, keep an eye out on our social media pages, that's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, for updates throughout the week and for previews leading up to our show on Friday nights. Thanks again, guys. I'm senior producer Lou DeVizio for Monday, October 10th, 2022. This is New Mexico in Focus, the podcast. Have a great week, everyone.